Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains references to sex and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the 9th of September 1953 and you could hear a pin drop in Sydney's Central Police Court. Detective Sergeant George Davis is giving evidence about the interview he conducted at the CIB with Veronica Mabel Monty that led him to charge her with the attempted murder of her son-in-law, star Balmain rugby league player Bob Lullum. Detective Sergeant Davis hasn't even got to establishing for the court what the accused said about the allegation she'd dosed Bob with Thalrat, a popular over-the-counter rat poison. But what he has just said, that Veronica admitted to him that she'd had sex with Bob on two occasions, is so sensational it'll actually push the attempted murder charge out of many headlines. Detective Sergeant Davis tells the court that at this point in the interview, he'd asked Veronica if she loved Bob. She'd said she, quote, liked him very much. Detective Sergeant Davis relates how he later learned that between these two encounters, there was another intimacy. And this one happened on a Sunday while Judy, Bob's wife, Veronica's daughter, was at church. Detective Sergeant Davis goes on to describe the rest of the interrogation. Veronica, he says, admitted that she'd called the rugby league's medical officer, Dr Greenberg, on the afternoon of the 20th of July and called herself Mrs Wilkin when she'd made the initial claim that Bob's beer had been spiked with rat poison by her husband. Detective Sergeant Davis tells the court that he said to Veronica at this point, It would appear you knew Bobby Lullum was suffering from thallium poisoning and therefore you may know who gave it to him. Was it your husband? He says that Veronica replied, quote, No, I did it. 
I'm Michael Adams and this is the third and final instalment in the Forgotten Australia episode, The Poisoned Footy Player. After Detective Sergeant Davis had cautioned Veronica that day at the CIB, she told him the how and why of Bob's poisoning, making her admissions in front of her sobbing daughter Judy. At the end of June, Veronica said she'd been in the city and shopping at Knock and Kirby's, the big George Street store that sold household goods and hardware items. Quote, I saw some Thalrat on the counter in front of me. I must have bought it on the impulse. Then, on the night of the 2nd of July, a week after her first sexual encounter with Bob, she'd had another impulse, this one to commit suicide. She told Detective Sergeant Davis, quote, I was down in the dumps and miserable. Veronica got the bottle of thallium from her room. Taking it to the kitchen, she made a cup of Milo for herself. Then she added the thallium. Quote, It was only a little bottle. I put about half the bottle in the cup. I did not know how much to take. It was right at that moment, she said, that fate intervened. Bob, who was in the bedroom with Judy, heard Veronica rattling around in the kitchen and sang out that they'd both like some Milo too. Ever the helpful mother-in-law, Veronica made drinks for both of them. As she explained, quote, When I picked up the cups, I must have picked up the wrong one. Bobby and Judy were in bed and I took it in to them. I really thought I was the one that was getting the poison. Veronica's story was that when she didn't get sick, she figured that the thallium mustn't have been any good and she just didn't think of it again. Bob started to feel sick on the 4th of July, and over the next two weeks, his symptoms got worse and worse. Yet Veronica claimed that she still didn't make the connection. It wasn't until that Monday, the 20th of July, literally right after they'd had sex again, when Bob took tablets prescribed by Balmain's doctor and started vomiting, that Veronica claimed she finally put two and two together. That's when she'd called Dr. Greenberg, saying her name was a Mrs. Wilkin, and set in motion the police investigation that had eventually resulted in her arrest. Detective Sergeant Davis told the court that he'd asked why she hadn't told Dr. Greenberg the truth straight away. Veronica said she didn't know. But she did admit to calling the CIB on the 31st of July to anonymously claim that her husband had put thallium in the milk at the Lullum home and that she'd further sent the ransom-style letter card to the CIB that day from the GPO. She'd done these things, she told Detective Sergeant Davis, quote, to put you off my trail. Detective Sergeant Davis said that after his CIB interview with Veronica, he'd gone to the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital to get Bob's side of the story. Quote, Lullum said he had been intimate with Mrs. Monty on three occasions and that complete intercourse had not taken place. Judy Lullum was the next witness. She said on the 27th of July, after she'd seen her husband in hospital, she was at home with Veronica when her mother said she needed to tell her something. Quote, she said that she and Bobby had become intimate. She told me twice. She said the first time was during one of the cricket tests in the lounge room. Asked whether her mother revealed what led up to the incident, Judy told the court, quote, She was rather vague about it. She really does not know what led up to it. It just happened. Prosecutor Sergeant Rex Hamilton asked whether Veronica had talked of any previous incidents. Judy replied, Yes, that Bob had kissed her before, passionately. Judy said that the following night, she and her mother visited Bob, and when they got home, her mother gave her more details. Quote, 
We spoke about the second occasion the conduct occurred. She said it was on the Monday before Bob was admitted to hospital, the same day as the police came to the house. I couldn't remember her exact words, but she said that the way she told it, she probably made it sound worse than it was. It's hard to comprehend how it could sound worse than it had actually been. And in describing the emotional impact of her mother's revelations, Judy showed flair for understatement. Quote, Naturally, these confidences upset me, but I can't remember what I said. Sergeant Hamilton asked, Did you say, are you in love with Bob? Judy replied, yes. I think she said she wasn't. She said it was a weak moment. There had actually been three weak moments, though Judy so far had only heard about two of them. Judy told the court that it wasn't until after her mother had been charged with attempted murder that she'd learned of the other time Veronica and Bob had had sex when she was at church. As for how Veronica came to be poisoned with Thallium, Judy said that on Saturday the 8th of August, she, her mother and father had been driving to solicitor Jack Tom's office. That's when Veronica announced she'd taken Thalrat. According to Judy, her mother claimed she'd ingested the poison a few days after Bob had been admitted to hospital. So around Friday, the 24th of July. Of course, that made it odd that she hadn't manifested symptoms at all until the 8th of August, more than two weeks later. Cross-examined by Jack Tom, Judy said that Bob and Veronica had always been affectionate. Mr. Tom asked, There was nothing of the old mother-in-law complex as far as you could observe? Judy said no. Trying to establish that Veronica had previously been confused in the kitchen and could have muddled the Milo cups, the solicitor asked, quote, Have you noticed your mother mixing eating utensils? Judy replied, Quite often she would mix the dinners up. After Veronica had been charged, Judy talked to Bobby about her mother and he'd said to her of Veronica, quote, Knowing her as I do, I would never believe she deliberately gave me thallium. Gwen Stewart, the attractive young woman who'd come to Balmain Games and who'd met Bob just once, and in the company of Judy and Veronica, was called briefly to testify that she'd never had any sort of intimacy with him, despite what Veronica had suspected. Next, it was Bob's turn to give evidence, and he provided a chronology of his poisoning, describing the symptoms and how they'd gotten worse over those first few weeks in July. As compelling as that was, what everyone in court was waiting to hear was what he had to say about his intimacies with his mother-in-law. But spectators were disappointed that day when court was adjourned before they got to that part of the testimony. At some point on that day, the 9th of September, either during lunch or after court adjourned, Bob and Judy went to the Balfour Hotel, which was near the court, and what was said then would come back to haunt them 18 months later. The following morning, Tuesday the 10th of September, after the court spectators had again jostled for seats, they heard Bob confirm that Veronica had asked him about lipstick on his collar one time. Quote, I said I haven't any idea where it came from or how it got there. I suggested we show the shirt to my wife. In court, Bob denied he'd had anything to do with Gwen Stewart and said the matter had been dropped in his home because he and Judy had cleared the air and she'd believed him when he said nothing untoward was going on. In Bob's version of events, he'd been on the couch with Veronica on the night of the 26th of June when she asked what was wrong in his marriage to Judy. He said nothing. She said she thought they were drifting apart. Bob told the court, quote, 
I said I would like to have it ironed out there and then and get to the bottom of what was on her mind, but she insisted I stay on the lounge and let Judy go to sleep. I kissed my mother-in-law goodnight and said, I'm going to bed now, but she insisted I stay there and listen to the cricket. Sydney's Truth newspaper absolutely lived for this sort of story. Sporting celebrity, attempted murder, sexual scandal. And thinking itself freed from the usual constraints because this was a court matter, Truth alone printed the more salacious details of Bob's cross-examination. A year down the track, these articles would be among those cited by the New South Wales Attorney-General when he announced amendments to the Crimes Act to prevent such filth from being published again. For the moment, though, Truth readers got all the juicy details of the prosecutor's cross-examination of Bob. Sergeant Hamilton, what happened then? Bob, we both more or less stretched out on the lounge and got comfortable. Sergeant Hamilton, what happened next? Bob, after several kisses, we became a little familiar with one another. That's all that took place. There was no intercourse or anything like that. Sergeant Hamilton, did anything happen to any clothing? Bob, I think Mrs. Monty's slacks were lowered to around her knees. Sergeant Hamilton, although you say no intimacy took place, what did happen? Here, Bob hesitated. Then he answered, quote, handling on both sides. Sergeant Hamilton, to put it briefly, you satisfied your sexual desires? Bob, yes. Afterwards, Bob told the court, he and Veronica had felt guilty. She'd said, I'm sorry this happened. He'd replied, so am I. But they weren't so sorry that it didn't happen twice more. Questioned about these instances, Bob was made to explain in detail about Veronica's underwear coming off. This had to be mortifying for Judy. But Bob also said that on the second and third occasion he'd been with Veronica, no sexual intercourse had actually taken place. So, how to reconcile Bob and Veronica's differing versions of events? She said they'd had sexual intercourse. He said they hadn't. It's hard to believe that she would have lied about this. Exaggerating the extent of their intimacy only made her look worse to her daughter, her husband, and to the rest of Australian society. But Bob did have a motive to lie. By denying they'd gone all the way, he might yet save a shred of his character in the eyes of his wife and society at large. It is also possible that Bob didn't consider that he was lying. Without getting into the nitty-gritty of what happened, Detective Sergeant Davis said that Bob in hospital initially had said that, quote, complete intercourse had not taken place. Whatever his definition was and whatever they did, what Bob said next in court didn't help his cause because it implied that he and Veronica hadn't refrained from sex because of any self-control, but because she wasn't yet physically capable. Quote, My mother-in-law said that if we could wait a while until after she'd fully recovered from her operation, this could be done properly. Continuing his testimony, Bob said that despite everything that had happened, he and Veronica were still friendly and he couldn't believe that she'd tried to kill him. Yet what he said about the night his mother-in-law had doled out the Milo contained a really troubling detail. Bob took his Milo with one and a half teaspoons of sugar. Judy took hers with a little less sugar. Veronica took no sugar at all. 
And as far as Bob recalled, no one that night had complained about getting the wrong drink. Veronica's solicitor, Jack Tom, next went to the question of motive, asking Bob, quote, Do you know or can you suggest any reason why your mother-in-law should desire to terminate your existence? Bob replied, No, sir, I don't. Further chipping away at motive, Mr. Tom elicited from Bob that the intimacies between him and Monica had been on a, quote, mutual basis. Bob also told the court that at the time of the poisoning, any previous differences regarding Gwen Stewart had been ironed out and that he, Judy and Veronica were living in the ride home as a happy family unit. The defence again tried to establish that Veronica was in the habit of mixing up meals. Bob confirmed that she had on occasion put the wrong plates on the table and more so since she'd had her operation. Mr. Tom put it to Bob, quote, Other than this cup of Milo, would you agree she had ample opportunity to poison and kill you if she wanted to? Bob said, numerous occasions. After he'd finished giving evidence, Bob left the court and Judy hurried after him. They held hands briefly, said their goodbyes, and he left to catch the train back to Tunkurry. Other witnesses included Dr. Greenberg, who testified about the initial phone call he'd received, and government analyst Thomas MacDonald, who estimated that Bob had ingested seven grains of thallium sulfate and Veronica about three, which accounted for the contents of the one-ounce bottle of Thalrat that she'd bought at Knock and Kirby's. Detective Sergeant Jack Bateman of the CIB said that when he'd interviewed Veronica at the hospital on the 8th of August, he'd suggested to her that she'd taken this small amount of thallium recently and she'd done it to try to substantiate what she'd claimed to Detective Sergeant Davis and Detective Paul about having been suicidal and accidentally dosing Bob instead of herself. Veronica denied this, quote, I took the rest of the thallium that was in the bottle. I mixed it with nerve tonic and took it the Friday after Bobby came here. If that was the case, Detective Sergeant Bateman asked, why hadn't she told Detective Sergeant Davis and Detective Paul that she'd taken the thallium at the time of her arrest? Veronica replied, I was too distraught. On the third day of the hearing, Friday the 11th of September, the Defence and Crown made their concluding addresses. Jack Tom argued Veronica should be discharged because the prosecution had failed to prove she'd administered the poison to Bob deliberately and with the intention of murdering him. The prosecution, he said, had brought forward a hodgepodge of motives, including the transfer of the riot house into both Judy and Bob's names, the lipstick found on his shirt, and Veronica and Bob's sexual relationship. None of these, he said, stood up. Bob had apparently agreed to put the house in his and Judy's names. After the Gwen Stewart misunderstanding had been resolved, Bob, Judy and Veronica had continued living happily together. As for Bob and Veronica's sexual relationship, Mr. Tom skated on some pretty thin ice when he argued that it was reasonable to assume that the ongoing nature of these intimacies meant that Veronica had wanted him alive and that she'd even promised him, quote, further favours. Then, Mr. Tom said, there was the fact that Veronica had been the one to warn Dr. Greenberg, which had resulted in Bob's hospitalisation and treatment and her prosecution. This, the solicitor argued, wasn't the action of someone with murderous intent. 
He concluded, quote, The prosecution has failed to make out a prima facie case, and I submit that this is a case on which no jury could be reasonably expected to convict, and I therefore ask you to discharge the defendant at this stage. Police Prosecutor Sergeant Rex Hamilton argued, quote, If ever there was a case which is bristling with motive, this is the case. The Crown's contention was that Veronica had found herself in an impossible situation because she was having an illicit relationship with her daughter's husband while living under their roof. Sergeant Hamilton said that Veronica took the poison home and put a dose in a cup, quote, which was intended for someone. I submit she had no intention to commit suicide. Sergeant Hamilton said that the later taking of thallium was merely a subterfuge to bolster up her story. Veronica putting Thalrat in the Milo was premeditated, he said, and the case had to be dealt with by a judge and jury. Stipendiary Magistrate Denton agreed and Veronica was committed to stand trial on a charge of having administered thallium to Bob with the intent to murder. The case was going to be heard in December and until then should be free on £500 bail and have to report to Ride Police Station three times a week. When the magistrate asked if she had anything to say, Veronica replied quietly, I am innocent. Three months later, on Wednesday the 9th of December 1953, Q started forming outside the Central Criminal Court in Darlinghurst nearly two hours before Veronica's trial for attempted murder began at 10am before Mr Justice Clancy. Veronica was again going to be represented by Jack Tom, while Queen's counsel Charles Rooney would be handling the case for the Crown. Veronica pleaded not guilty, and she also denied an alternate charge of having maliciously administered the poison and thereby causing her son-in-law grievous bodily harm. Bob was the first witness called by the Crown. It had now been five months since he was poisoned, and his hair had grown back and he'd regained weight. But he did say he still suffered pains in his back, though he wasn't sure if this was the result of the thallium. Bob repeated his evidence about feeling sicker and sicker in early to mid-July, the visit from the police, his admission to hospital, the treatment he'd received, and the horrible symptoms he'd experienced. At this stage, Justice Clancy ordered the jury to leave the court so that the defence and prosecution could argue the admissibility of evidence about Bob and Veronica's relationship. Yet what followed wasn't actually an argument. Instead, it was a furious agreement between two supposedly opposing counsels. Jack Tom said that the evidence was highly prejudicial to Veronica and didn't speak to motive. Prosecutor Charles Rooney concurred that it was of low probative value. Justice Clancy was so astounded, he felt moved to do the prosecutor's job for him. Quote, One motive which might be put to the jury would be for her to dispose of the evidence of her wrongdoing, namely Lullum. Mr Rooney still wasn't convinced, and he said he didn't really want to be asking questions of a sexual nature. The judge pushed him, quote, you are content to have the matter before the jury as completely motiveless, notwithstanding that according to the Crown case, there was this course of conduct. You want this kept from the jury? Mr. Rooney replied, quote, As far as that is concerned, I am unable to draw a motive. Sarcastically, the judge turned to the defence solicitor and said, quote, Do you think Mr. Rooney has adequately stated your case for you, Mr. Tom? 
Regardless of what Mr Rooney wanted, Justice Clancy wasn't having this state of affairs in his courtroom and said, quote, My ruling is that the probative value of the evidence is considerable as to motive, and if it is tendered, I shall admit it. The jury was brought back in and Mr Rooney cautiously asked Bob questions about the first night that he and Veronica were intimate on the couch. Bob described the crucial lead-up, quote, She said, no, stay here and talk. She grabbed my wrist and pulled me down to the lounge. I sat down and said, what do you want to talk about? Bob said, quote, I can't say I was attacked. Mr Rooney, you mean the initiative was not with you? Bob, yes. What happened was just a bit of fondling between us. Informed he was going to have to tell the court more than that, Bob said, I said I was going to bed and she kissed me. Here's how the Daily Telegraph characterised this part of the trial. Quote, After she pulled him to the lounge, there had been misconduct, but no sexual intercourse had taken place. His sexual desires had been satisfied. Bob provided only scant details of the other occasions. He did, however, confirm that when he and Judy had finally discussed these infidelities, he'd said, quote, Oh well, that's just one of those things that happen. That was it for Bob's evidence. The other prosecution witnesses included Detective Sergeants Davis and Bateman, along with Dr Greenberg and the government analyst Thomas MacDonald, and they all repeated their evidence from the committal hearing. With the Crown's case concluded, Veronica took to the dock as the defence's only witness. Veronica made an unsworn statement, which meant she wasn't under oath and she couldn't be cross-examined. At times sobbing and seeming near collapse, she said, quote, I have never borne any ill feeling towards Bobby in my life. On the contrary, I would say I always have and will more than like him. Veronica said she'd been depressed and had bought thallium with no intention of using it for a wrongful purpose. And then she decided to take some in Milo because she was miserable. Quote, I did not know what effect it would have. It was extremely hard to credit that as being in any way plausible, given that the Thal rat poisonings in 1952 and 1953 had received extensive newspaper and radio coverage. Veronica's statement continued, quote, I more or less automatically prepared a dose for myself. Looking back, it was just like an awful nightmare. I waited for results, but nothing happened. I had no intention of giving it to Bobby because I had no need. I did not think the poison was any good. I was in for a rude awakening. What seemed to be a little illness on Bobby's part developed. To my stark horror, it struck me that Bobby must have got the cup I intended for myself. I did everything in my power to get Bobby to a doctor. That was why she'd contacted Dr. Greenberg. Thing was, by that stage, it had been more than two weeks since Bob had first displayed symptoms. What's also worth noting is that on the 9th of July, Seven days after she poisoned Bob, Thallium was in the headlines everywhere because Caroline Grills had been arrested and charged with four Thalrat murders. Surely, with this news blaring from every radio and plastered across every front page, and her son-in-law getting sicker and sicker, Veronica had to give some thought as to where the Thallium she'd put into the Milo had ended up. In court, Veronica wept before continuing her statement, quote, 
All this time, I was living a life of torment. I felt I could not place confidence in anyone. If I told people I had intended the poison for myself, they would have thought the worst of me. Later, I made a statement to Detective Davis telling the true facts of the case. I want you to believe me when I say, and I say this quite definitely, that I never gave Bobby Thallium deliberately. It's worth hearing two of those sentences again. Quote, All this time, I was living a life of torment. I felt I could not place confidence in anyone. All this time. That contradicted her claim that it wasn't until the 20th of July that she'd really suspected Bob had gotten the poisoned Milo. So, whether she'd intended to give it to him or not, Veronica had known why he was sick for a considerable amount of time before she alerted Dr. Greenberg. 
While the newspaper report made it clear that no one approached these jury members, it's also entirely inappropriate that they were sitting there listening to a popular rabble discuss the case. One person who wasn't present was Veronica Mabel Monty. That was because procedure dictated that now she was officially awaiting her verdict, she had to spend the night in custody at Long Bay Jail. And it was there that she made the acquaintance of Caroline Grills and Yvonne Fletcher, her peers in poisoning. And these trio of thallium enthusiasts spent the evening together. The next morning, after her new friends had wished her luck, Veronica returned to court to hear her fate. She sat in the dock with Judy behind her, but Bob sat by himself, far from his wife and mother-in-law. After Justice Clancy had concluded his summing up, he directed the jury to retire and consider its verdict. At 11.45am, the jury had some questions. They wanted to know about the Milo, and in particular, what the cups looked like. So Bob was recalled and he told the court that all three cups had been identical. Rather than having schooners at the pub while people discussed the case around them or asking what the Milo cups looked like, the jury might have actually asked for 24 cups of hot Milo, 12 without sugar and 12 with one and a half teaspoons added just the way Bob liked it. I have to confess I'd never really thought about putting sugar in Milo and I wondered how much of a difference it'd make. So before recording today, I made two cups of hot Milo, one normal and one with sugar. There's no way you'd mistake one for the other. And remember Bob said he didn't notice that his Milo was unsweetened? Giving him the benefit of the doubt and allowing perhaps for a memory lapse, maybe he did notice it was unsweetened at the time, didn't worry about bringing that up with Veronica and just drank down the Milo with the poison. But if that had been the case, Veronica definitely would have realised she was drinking a sweetened Milo and that Bob was drinking the poison she'd meant for herself. So in the very kindest interpretation, she had to have been aware she'd poisoned her son-in-law from the very moment it happened. In the unkindest interpretation, she'd deliberately tried to kill him and had been lying about it ever since. At 1.45pm on Thursday the 10th of December, the jury indicated to the judge that they had reached a verdict. A few minutes later, Veronica was led back into court and sat in the dock with her hands clasped in her lap. Judy was there to support her, but Bob wasn't in the court. He was sitting by himself outside. The tension rose as Justice Clancy took the bench and the jury filed in. Veronica stood and faced the jurors, nervously moistening her lips and clutching the dock rail. Justice Clancy asked for the verdict. The foreman said that on the charge of attempted murder, Veronica Mabel Monty was not guilty. On the alternate charge of maliciously administering the poison and causing Bob grievous bodily harm, the jury found her not guilty. Veronica was free to go, but she wasn't going to be free of another court judgment. At least Judy seemed to still have her mother's back despite everything. Once Veronica was discharged, she went to a side room where mother and daughter hugged and burst into tears. Besieged by reporters, Judy and Veronica rushed for a waiting car. Veronica told the journalists she had nothing to say. Alf Monty and Jack Tom awaited them at the vehicle. 
Asked how he felt about the verdict, Alf shrugged his shoulders, which was fair enough given that on two occasions, when his wife had made phone calls, one to Dr Greenberg, the other to the CIB, she'd said it was her husband who'd tried to poison Bob. As for the victim himself, Bob was nowhere to be seen. He'd already piled into a ute with his parents and was on the road back to Tuncurry. Pursued by reporters, Judy, Veronica and Alf drove to a house in Como in southern Sydney and hurried inside. Judy, her eyes red, wearily said to journalists of her mother, quote, Mrs Monty is resting. She is going to have a cup of tea and then settle down. We want to be left alone now. Please leave us alone. Asked about her future plans, Judy said, quote, We haven't made any yet. We haven't had time to think about it. Asked if she'd seen Bob or knew where he was, Judy replied, I don't know, I haven't seen him. While Bob, Judy, Veronica and Alf wanted to put everything behind them, they also simply couldn't move on with their lives as though nothing had happened. And Truth had the exclusive on Sunday, the 13th of December. Its front page headline read, quote, Monty, Mrs. Lullum, move for divorces. Broken lives in wake of sensational case. Alf was divorcing Veronica, naming Bob as co-respondent. Judy was divorcing Bob, naming Veronica as co-respondent. Truth's other big exclusive that day was Veronica's story in her own words. While she hadn't wanted to talk to the Sydney Morning Herald, The Sun or The Daily Telegraph, she'd been happy to give her story in its entirety to truth. And it made for a sobering read. Her article began, quote, I was perhaps the loneliest woman in the world when I walked out of Darlinghurst Court on Thursday. While a cloud had certainly lifted from my mind, I had little cause to rejoice at my acquittal by the jury. She continued, A kindly policeman who had guarded the dock told me, You're free now, Mrs. Monty. But I knew in my heart that I could never be free. Veronica wrote despairingly, quote, My human frailties had brought shame to the ones I loved best in the world. She revealed that she wasn't going to contest the divorce from Alf, who'd supported her throughout the ordeal. And as horrible as she'd been to Alf, quote, My real heartache is for my daughter. No one will ever know the agonies I have suffered in the knowledge that it was I who wrecked her married happiness. My whole life was bound up in Judy, my only child, and while she has done her best to restore my morale and faith in myself, I feel that from now on our lives must be lived apart. As for Veronica's future, she said, quote, Even though it is all over, I am still apprehensive, but I am not bitter. The crisis I have passed through has been soul-searing. I have been a sitting target for every wisecracker and crackpot. It probably seemed fun to take pot shots at me, and the people, seeing them nudge and stare as I passed. I hope it will be different where I am going. Where Veronica was going wasn't clear right at that moment. As for Bob, he was back living with his folks and the following Sunday, Truth ran an article headlined, Lullum is planning a new life. The article began, At his hometown, Tuncurry, where he has retired to lick his wounds, Bobby Lullum is surveying the life that a few months ago held so much promise and beauty. He is bewilderingly trying to map out a new life. But the past was obscuring his future. Quote, 
In the still smouldering ashes of his past life, Lullum can see constantly the ruined marriage with his beautiful wife, Judith, the destruction of their home and the carrying business at Ride and the end of his football career. Truth Shaw had a lot to say, but when their reporter ambushed Bob as he got off his bike in Tunkurry, the man himself was far less forthcoming. Nothing at all to say was what he said at first. But Truth's man wasn't taking no for an answer. He asked, What are you doing up here, Bob? Been fishing much? Bob said tersely, No fishing. I've just been giving the family a hand. Asked what the future held, Bob rubbed his head wearily and replied, quote, Look, I've come up here to try to forget about the last few months, to get everything out of my mind and to think clearly again. Truth wasn't letting go. Veronica had told her side of the story. Didn't he want his known? Bob said, Well, she's told about her feelings, but mine are too deep to tell the whole world. So how did he feel about Judy divorcing him? Bob had nothing to say. What about rugby league? Bob replied, I'm not thinking about football at the moment. Anyway, this is midsummer. When the truth reporter raised the fact that England was touring next year and maybe he'd be selected, Bob replied, That's too far ahead. I'm fit, always was, but I'm not in training or anything like that. Even though Truth had barely gotten half a dozen sentences from Bob, it didn't stop their reporter editorialising. Quote, Truth got the impression that behind Lullum's hesitancy to declare himself on his football future was the sure knowledge that he would be subject to good-natured but cruel ribaldry from some of the fans. Then the newspaper sank the boot in. Quote, So that is the present bleak outlook for Bobby Lullum. He has known his crowded sweet hours as a football hero, and it was naturally pleasing to his ego to be pointed out as Bobby Lullum, the footballer. But sporting adulation is short-lived. In future, Lullum will be pointed out as Bobby Lullum. You know, Mrs. Monty was his mother-in-law. When Truth found Judy working her clerk job at a butcher's shop, she had only one thing to say. I just want to forget. But Bob wasn't going to let her forget. That's because he planned to contest the divorce. At the end of February 1955, Bob had returned to the house in Ride, but Judy was now living in Glebe with her father. Meanwhile, Veronica was living in Como and had for the past five months been working at the Union Hotel in North Sydney under the name Vera Morgan. On the 28th of that month, the four of them turned up to Sydney's divorce court. Now, in 1955, no-fault divorce was still 20 years away in Australia. So... If their petitions for divorce were going to be successful, Judy and Alf were going to have to prove in court that Bob and Veronica had committed adultery. And that meant dredging up everything during a hearing that would last three days, a day longer than Veronica's trial for attempted murder. Judy's petition would be heard first, and the result would then determine Alf's case, which was going to follow immediately before the same judge, Justice Dovey. In yet another packed courtroom, Judy sat with her solicitor, Jack Tom. Her husband sat behind his barrister and stared straight ahead. Bob and Judy didn't look at each other. At the start of the case, Justice Dovey told the court, quote, Remember the old story of the Garden of Eden often thrown up at man? Woman tempted man and he did eat. The only question we are concerned with is, did he eat? 
Did he eat? That is, was Bob guilty of adultery, justifying Judy's petition for divorce? Contrary to what he'd said, Justice Dovey was actually more concerned about the actions of Eve in this case, rather than what Adam had done. On the first day, evidence from Veronica's trial was read, and Judy testified to what she knew of her husband and her mother's affair. She repeated that Bob had told her, quote, "...it was just one of those things that happen." And she told the court that while she was on good terms with her mother, she would not under any circumstances consider reconciliation with her husband. Giving evidence, Veronica recounted her version of the thallium poisoning and admitted to three intimacies with Bob, now saying they'd had sexual intercourse on two of these occasions. On the second day of the case, Bob denied intercourse but agreed that scandalous conduct had taken place. He said that before the poisoning, he and Judy hadn't argued about anything. The way he painted it, they'd had a perfectly happy marriage. Magnanimously, Bob told Justice Dovey that he was willing to accept Judy back into the marriage and to try to start over afresh. Bob also made an extraordinary and cruel claim that also amounted to a confession of perjury. What he said was that he'd previously lied in court when he said that intimacies between him and Veronica had been by mutual consent. He said he'd only said that to protect Veronica, and now Bob claimed that she had forced herself on him. Stunningly, he also claimed that he and Judy had talked at the Balfour Hotel on the 9th of September 1953, the first day of the committal hearing, and what she'd said in that conversation condoned the adultery. If Justice Dovey accepted that this was true, it could be grounds for refusing a divorce. Bob's barrister said, quote, It is a tragedy of a young couple, obviously very deeply attached to one another, who have their marriage ruined by the conduct of an outside person, for whom, strictly speaking, neither of them is responsible. I would say the proper solution would be to find a way to reunite them and resurrect their marriage, which started so successfully. Jack Tom began his summation and was 14 minutes into his reiteration of the facts when Justice Dovey cut him off, saying, quote, I don't think I need trouble you any further, Mr. Tom. I don't think any good purpose would be served by public discussion by me on nauseating details of the disgusting incidents on which I am obliged to pass judgment. Justice Dovey said he was satisfied that adultery had taken place and that he wasn't satisfied that Judy had said anything to condone it. He found Bob and Veronica guilty and granted Judy and Alf their divorces. But now came the Adam and Eve question. While Bob was technically guilty, Justice Dovey said Veronica was actually to blame for everything. Quote, I am satisfied that Lullum did not initiate the intimacies on any occasion. I am convinced he was seduced into participation in what has been quite properly described as scandalous conduct and has been seduced into that position by the woman charged. She may be properly criticised for breaking the marriage. The song Takes Two to Tango had been a hit for Pearl Bailey in Australia in early 1953, and the phrase, as we know it, It Takes Two to Tango, had just entered the lexicon. But clearly, Justice Dovey hadn't heard it. He ruled that Veronica had acted alone as a predator and homewrecker who destroyed the lives of her husband, her daughter, and her son-in-law. Bob, though guilty, was blameless. 
With her name and photos splashed all over the newspapers again, Veronica might as well have been wearing the scarlet letter. No one who drank at the Union Hotel in North Sydney was going to believe that their barmaid's name was Vera Morgan. On the night of Sunday the 17th of April 1955, the Union Hotel's owner, Victor Docker, was out with his family. With the premises quiet, Veronica went to a cupboard and found what she was looking for. Walking into one of the vacant bedrooms, she gripped her boss's 32 caliber pistol and fired a test shot into the mattress. Then, Veronica shot herself in the head. Later that night, Mr Docker found her body slumped across the bloodstained bed. Summoned to North Sydney Police Station, Judy wept bitterly while Alf tried to contain his emotions. After talking to the police, father and daughter walked out of the station arm in arm and into the welcoming embrace of anonymity. As for Bob, he also lived out the rest of his days in relative anonymity on the mid-north coast. Family tree records at Ancestry.com.au show that he remarried in 1958 and had two children, with Ancestry electoral roll records listing his occupation as labourer. While he remained active in rugby league on the North Coast, Bob, who'd scored 85 tries for Balmain in 85 games, never played first grade again. However, he did attend the 1966 Kangaroos reunion and remained committed to his beloved Tigers. Bob Lollum died of a heart attack on Christmas Eve 1986. The little obituary that appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald two days later didn't mention the 1950s scandal and instead focused on his football career and his later club activities. Bob Lollum is buried at Tenterfield Cemetery. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Forgotten Australia will return in two weeks. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To see photos and articles relating to this and other Forgotten Australia episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and take care of yourself. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.